Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Off the Record. Uh, we know we've said this before, but over the last few weeks it really seems like we've been getting a lot of feedback and questions from listeners, uh, and it's kind of great and awesome for us to want to read that, but then be able to work that to this show. Um, so go to offtherecord.fm uh, and leave us a question or send us an email or you know feel free to hit us up on Twitter as well, uh, because it's just great to know that we are providing some information to those who are looking to get it. Um, so to start off with some follow-up from last episode, we talked extensively about Last.fm and then transitioned that into other streaming services. Um, someone asked us a question about more detailed thoughts on Bandcamp, and we thought that would be pretty smart to hit up as well. Uh, so Jesse, you started using Bandcamp, uh, I guess, proactively day one, right? Yeah, I mean, I can literally remember... Uh getting the press release when it was first going out. So um, I started getting bands on there from day one because I was like, you know, the biggest thing was is that was back when we had MySpace streams. And I sa said to all the bands I was recording, I'm like, please use this player so my recording doesn't sound terrible. And people would install it on their MySpace page uh, as an alternate player with a good quality stream. Um, but... As they added features, uh, it just became so apparent that this was the best tool out there. Like one of the smartest things they did was they were very early on in incorporating the name your own price tool, which if you're not using, you're a fool because it's oftentimes very free money for you. I sometimes question the statistics they put out, even though I think they're true that I don't think every genre of music is getting like these crazy $200 downloads that people talk about. Um, I think that might be a little bit more the folky indie 35-year-olds with extra income world more than the pop-punk world. But um, the, what was always most important to me was that you get the email address of people who are enthusiastic about your music enough to download it. And that's the most priceless thing in, or I should say, you could actually quantify that price because you can then use statistics to analyze it, but it's the most valuable thing that you can get um, for staying in touch with a fan, especially after our discussion last week about how terrible Facebook is about staying in touch with fans these days, taking those emails from Bandcamp and exporting them to your mailing list. And, and from my perspective, I don't think I had ever, as a, as a fan or a listener, I don't think, I think the first time I heard of Bandcamp was uh, with Man Overboard and Run For Cover during the Real Talk leak thing. Um, and then... I guess it was still pretty fresh at that point. Like, not many labels or bands were using it, so I don't. I don't think I conceptually really grasped what Bandcamp was until maybe later in 2010 or early 2011. Um, and then it just started to be a really great way to stream smaller bands' music that I would never be able to find on iTunes realistically, obviously. And you know, certainly RDO and Spotify wasn't weren't a thing yet. It was kind of a different era. Um, and then I don't. And then I knew you had talked to me a bunch about emails and all of that, and so adjusted man overboard. But it really became apparent to me as sort of someone who was switching up his role a little bit and then developing and working with bands in a management role just how great Bandcamp was in terms of those things like email. It's so great to see. It's just so you know the, the value there is kind of it's priceless. You don't you don't you don't know what you're going to get from it, but you're going to get from it a lot more than you would from a service like Facebook. Uh and even just speaking of like Knucklepuck, uh you know, it's great that we can count on that income every single day whether it's $5 or $100, uh depending on if we have a new release out or if something's a little more popular. 
compared to iTunes, I think as well, where you just only see your royalty statement once a month or so. Uh, it's really nice to just know that there's sort of, it's a good way to gauge, I think, about how your music is doing in general, since you can get alerts every day or every minute someone buys something instead of just once a month. It's nice to know that there's this support system that's visible for both fans and bands. And that's sort of like a, not an undervalued, just an under talked about thing, uh, since it's just always been a part of their service. Yeah, the immediate money thing is huge, and that, that would be that was actually a big problem we had when I was managing Man Overboard is that we were with um, using Top Spin for a lot of our merch, and they did not. Um, I don't know what their pay terms are today because I don't really use it for anything that's paying. But you know, it would take us over thirty days to be paid for our main source of income, and that can be really crippling for a band that's like just hitting that stage where it's like we get a lot of money but we have a lot of things to pay for all at the same time and there's that growing pain period where that's really crucial but i will also say what also really helped tip bandcamp was like when they made it so that you could very easily discover other bands that you want to see the recommendation thing that bands could put up other records they recommend for um you once you're done with that that's one of the coolest things i've ever seen in one of the also, coolest ways to just build community. Like, you know, a lot of what we did with Man Overboard with building community was putting up those Defend Pop Punk podcasts on Bandcamp. And that's where they lived pretty much exclusively aside from our website. Really, really helped us get, you know, email addresses of people who are interested in all those fads and a community where, you know, everybody's linking into that. It's tagged with the Pop Punk tag. People are scrolling through, seeing that there's a podcast there. And then, saying, oh, I like pop punk when they search the pop punk tag and hearing 20 new pop punk bands they'd never, or maybe they didn't hear all of, but they're getting some new music. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought about it last week when we were talking about it, because it kind of just hit me, uh, I guess, yesterday when I was typing up our show notes. Oh, and those can be found at offtherecord.fm backslash tag backslash episodes. Uh, but, you know, Bandcamp sort of, to me, feels today what Last FM should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, in its in its full form, because uh, there is that community aspect, and it's so cool to not only get someone buying your band's EP, but then seeing them send along a message of support, being like, "Hey, I saw you guys on tour, and I just picked this up two days after I saw you because it's been, you know, you guys are like my new favorite band now." And so there's that aspect from the fan side of you know being able to show people what you're listening to and being able to recommend other people music, and then. You know, but similarly, and this is what Last FM didn't do, is that they obviously, of course, have this purchase model, and you can also stream right there as well. So it just sort of seems like Bandcamp to me is what yesterday's version of Last FM was for a lot of people, just one step further along. Uh, and and I think that's really great because we do. I think we all get a lot of value, and obviously the bands get the most, but we all get a lot of value out of sort of having that underdog service where. It promotes the underdog more, obviously, uh, and that's what's so just so valuable about this. Agreed, and um, you know, like there's that famous Jeff Bezos saying that we haven't woken up on the first day of the internet yet. That the internet is so young, and one of the things I always see with Bandcamp is like, you know, three years ago you could see that they were going to eventually go to this thing where you know you had a profile on there and people could follow you and see what you're buying, but they're going to get more social very slowly. It seems like they're very patient for this, but there's going to be even more cool things involved with the way that they have profiles and music fans are going to be able to show off what they're doing. It's going to keep growing for them pretty fast. And I 
every time I see them announce something, they do something cool and smart. I have no faith that's going to, I have faith that's not going to stop. I totally agree. It just seems like even though they're slow to add some stuff, when I do add stuff, it's the right way. It's not that they have to go three iterations to, to sort of hit their mark. Um, and I think the other really valuable thing about Bandcamp has been, and we've seen this more lately, but um, obviously Bandcamp for something like Run for Cover and No Sleep has been a part of their business model since 2010. But now we're seeing labels like Jaytree and Death Wish and those um, maybe more, I guess you would say, mon- like monumental or you know scene changing, whatever punk, hardcore, indie labels put their whole catalog up on Bandcamp for the discounted rate of $5 for an album or less. Uh, and that was, of course, sort of started with Jeff and Run for Cover, but it's really interesting to now see these larger labels that could very well be stuck in their tracks, but if they want to sort of evolve with where everyone is heading now, they've they've wisened up and put their catalog on Bandcamp. And, and for Jaytree, um, you know, they put their whole catalog up a week or two ago for $5, and it created this massive like love session, basically. Um, yes, there were articles on AV Club and Brooklyn Vegan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I looked on Twitter while I was typing this up, and there was just so many like, "Oh my God, I forgot about this release in 1996 from this band that no one has ever heard of." Oh my God, this is so good. Let me spend five dollars on this because I don't have the record or I don't have the CD. And um, after talking with those guys, you know, it seemed like they made a very nice little dent money-wise just in the first day and and that's great for them because for labels like that whether it's a polyvinyl or a tree or whomever older labels that will adapt to that it's kind of like free money in the sense so those releases live on itunes and spotify and audio but people get really excited about Bandcamp and about the possibility to rediscover something and stream it and then be like oh yeah i forgot about this i need this in my on my iPhone or on my Android device or on my iPod, or whatever it, and then they buy it. Um, so it's it's a pretty, I think, also interesting source of revenue for back catalog uh, from labels that are sort of older than Run for Cover. Totally, and I think one of the things you touched on that uh, we should expand upon too is like I, you know, with um, Man Overboard for Real Talk, like one of the strategies. Um, we came up with it. I was writing about a lot on Museformation at the time. Is like one, we made sure that it, the record was cheaper than iTunes to give fans incentive to go there, and we I kind of did that with every record I would do. And then secondly, people were so into putting the bonus track on iTunes at that time, um, and that makes sense for a bigger release if you're going to chart the top ten, try to drive people to buy it there instead. But we chose to put the bonus track um, always on. Uh, bad camp because we wanted fans to go there and we could get their email address and it was worth it for us to pay to record an extra song if we could stay in touch with our fans and like you know driving people to itunes instead of Bandcamp is one is, is probably just as dumb as driving fans to facebook to tie it all together yeah I, there's just yeah i just think yeah to tie it all together when you when you sort of add up all of Bandcamp's. Uh, features like it's just it's just so much more worth it. Even if you're making less money from Bandcamp because the price is lower, you know having having two thousand more emails could get you God knows how much more in merch or you know or kids coming out to tours and stuff like that. Well, but let's also keep in mind that Bandcamp takes ten to fifteen percent of your money, whereas iTunes takes thirty three percent. So even if you're taking a dollar off a ten dollar release you're still making more money on Bandcamp, which is another nice hidden side effect of it. Uh, absolutely. 
Uh, and so the other the other aspect of our follow up, uh, Amazon Prime Music launched this week, and I I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but they've been talking. Amazon has been talking about sort of jumping in this race with, I would say, more Apple and Microsoft than sort of like RDO and Spotify, just in terms of these the giant services, the giant you know software services or hardware. Uh, companies sort of getting into streaming because they already have access to a music catalog that they've been selling you for years now. Um, and it's free for all Prime users, and I think that's about $99 a month now. Uh, it is $99 a yeah. yeah. So for that $99 a month that you're already spending anyway, you now have access to around 1 million songs, which is, of course, a lot less than uh, these other streaming services have, and that is because there's no universal music group. Uh, songs are publishing songs on on Prime, and so that for if you don't know who's on Universal on the mainstream sense, that's like Jay Z and Kanye West, and on the punk level, that's like Blink 182's later catalog and Newfound Glory's middle catalog. Um, have you so have Fall you played out, a, Fall, Fall Out Boy yeah. too? Yeah, no doubt. A lot of stuff. Um, so have you, have you played around with it much? I looked, but I got so bored that I didn't get very far into it. Um, I found the detail that was reported online and you and I did a little investigation of, of that. Also, these contracts said no music that's newer than six months. So basically a part of the way they got a cheaper licensing fee is it wouldn't be new releases going up on the service. And that to me just bored me to death, but I do think is a is, to a certain extent is a smart play for Amazon because a lot of what Prime is for, like I don't know a lot of 17-year-olds who subscribe to Prime, but people like me who are 35, 36 years old, to me, I buy something off of Prime almost every week and, you know, moms use it to stock up their houses and stuff like that, and a lot of people who are older and are paying that $100 to have less shipping and a streaming video service and a streaming music service don't really care about music that's brand new. That's what makes it a smart thing for Amazon, but I don't know that that's a smart thing for converting people over to streaming, which obviously isn't Amazon's mission in life, but you know, having complete catalogs is what ends piracy. Having incomplete catalogs is what keeps people going back to piracy, so this does nothing for our cause as of putting money back into the music business as much as it does something for Amazon getting more money. I totally agree with you about with Amazon about like the service doesn't seem to necessarily be a real win for anyone except themselves. Um, and the web app that I the like on like AmazonPrime.com or whatever it is, um, the, it's kind of a disaster online. The iOS app is much less of a disaster, um, but it's not necessarily great. However, there's one really interesting thing about the iOS app to me that's um, that is kind of what I want out of my streaming my streaming service that no other streaming service does. <laughs> um, and the and the unfortunate thing is that there's no way I'm going to be able to use Amazon Music like that because of the catalog. But however, if you are on the iOS app, you have the option to toggle between music that is downloaded on your device and music that is in Amazon's cloud. So for example, uh, if you have a Blink-182 album on your music app of your iPhone and you have that downloaded through iTunes Match or synced up in another way, it will show up in uh, in uh, Amazon's music app on its own, and then you can also explore other music. So Spotify does this on their 
own uh, web app or on their own sort of desktop app. So if you're on Spotify on your Mac, you can see the music you have in your iTunes and also music you have streaming. But as far as I know, that doesn't work on um, the iOS apps and RDO certainly doesn't do it either. Um, so yeah, I'm not too stoked on Amazon Prime Music, but I do hope if what like Apple will do that with Beats so it's easy to just stream and listen to music you actually have downloaded on your phone already. Um, but that's sort of just a minor thing versus an actual an actual plus one for the service, which seems to just be kind of lazy. Well, yeah, it's doing for Amazon what Amazon wants to do, which is be the everything store and take over being your place you go for every bit of shopping. And it's a smart move for them. I don't know that it's a smart move for mankind. Yeah, and the only other thing about this, and we will have likely follow up on it next week is that tomorrow and and tomorrow uh tomorrow is june 18th that amazon seems to be taking the wraps off of their first smartphone tomorrow potentially so if that's the case like we'll see how this plays into it um we don't really know either way but we shall see back once again to sponsor off the record is our friends at limited run Limited Run is an easy-to-set-up, direct-to-fan solution for labels and artists. If you want to sign up, go for it, and you'll be selling with just within just a few minutes, and you can take uh, purchases either through PayPal or credit card via Stripe. Limited Run specializes in awesome features like cart limiting, digital street date solutions, and digital and physical pre-order bundles, and way more. Bad Timing Records had a very cool knuckle puck reissue last week, as well as a park Park 10-inch, actually, that goes on sale today, and we've just been utilizing all of its services between uh, great cart limiting, features for limited vinyl, and then also a bunch of digital street date stuff as well. Go to limitedrun.com for more, and thank you for sponsoring Off the Record. Another topic we thought might be interesting was this sort of mix of a, mix of a topic that an article I read called Slacktivist Fan Entitlement is Slowly Killing Punk. And then we realized, well, there might not be a ton to talk about on that. But then Jesse had mentioned that yet just yesterday he was listening to uh, about a year-old podcast uh, called Worst Gig Ever with Jeff Rickley. And Jeff brought up this idea that Thursday was using 15 years ago, maybe, I guess, at this point. About- yeah, uh, right, right. So when Full Collapse had... Uh, just come out, Jeff was talking about how they said, uh, we're going to give this one year to work out or we're going to go back to college because all of them had one year left of college to do it. They thought it was a little silly. Um, You know, if they didn't finish college after all that money and putting it in Rutgers, student loads aren't exactly cheap. And um, But then that's when, you know, if you're not old enough to remember, but the way the way Full Collapse really got so huge was they got played on MTV about every 15 minutes of the day. It was literally insane to see a band that sounded like that all of a sudden being one of the most played videos on MTV. Like, just you couldn't get away from it. So that after that, they decided, let's keep going another year. But what was also interesting is the guys who host that podcast were both in bands, um, Oxford Collapse and Panthers, and how even though they never got even a modicum of the success that Thursday did, they just kept doing that, well, we'll give it another year, and that it lasts about six to eight years. And I've seen that a million times with people, but part of what I wanted to discuss is I don't think that that's a smart thing to do because even when... It takes more than a year for almost anybody, aside from if you have one of those out-of-the-ordinary meteoric rises like Thursday. So if that's all you're betting on, your bet's usually going to be bad and you have a really bad strategy. You need to 
realize that you know a lot of this stuff is slow victories. And while you should be impatient for victories, um, there's definitely a thing of that. You know, there's lots of times that you're in a phase where like, well, I don't know. Like, is this success? Like, you know, like you'll be like, wow, we're playing. 3,000-seat venues or 2,000-seat venues, but you're also the opening band of four, so you're making $200 a night, if you're lucky, being that opening band of four on that size of a tour. And it's like, so on one sense, you're doing what you want to do, and in another sense, your wallet is really bad and you're borrowing money from your girlfriend to make the rent every month. Yeah, and it's a tough... So there's a lot of different like scenarios in which a band might say one year. It's either like you're in college and you're just being like, oh, I'd love to be in a band. Let's see where we are in a year. And if we don't get in anywhere, we'll break up. Um, and if that's like the case, well, dude, you got to, one, you got to record music first. Who, know, you, you, who knows how long that's going to take? So, uh, then you have to release it. Then you have to try to book local shows. And then you have to, God, let's hope we get a booking agent. Like the concept of a year and is just kind of no time at all when you're really thinking about it from the perspective of, either a newborn band or a band that is still very young. Um, and so I would say, like, oh, like most people don't say, we'll just give it a year. But I hear a lot of people say, we'll give it a year. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's more true than not true that year term. It's not like, oh, yeah, we'll give it 19 months or 24 months. It is like, we'll give it 12 months and we'll see where we are a year from today. Um, and there's just... Unless you have a booking agent and you have a record label, the odds that you're going to be able to accomplish things every day at that point are just so slim. Like, if yeah, I don't. Know, I guess Thursday were, were on victory at that point, right? They were on victory. But the interesting thing about that album and what Jeff was saying on the podcast is that that record didn't hit like on day one. And like, I think you know, it's one of the things I talk about in um, Get More Fans is that like. Any band that actually breaks when they first break um, with that breakthrough record, month nine sales are a lot more important than first week sales. And sticking to it for a long time, like, you know, Taking Back Sunday, Tell All Your Friends, when that hit, their best sales month was nine months out. Full Collapse, I want to say it was somewhere between six and nine months. Like, you know, the record did not have strong debuts because no one knew who they were, but people kept talking about the record. People kept building it. And that's what happens when you make a great record, but you're an unknown band as your buzz slowly builds. So it's a weird thing to put that on there. But the other reason that a lot of these bands don't work out in that year, too, is that they go all in like the famous bands they've seen. They go, oh, look how much promotion these bands do before their record's even out. It's like, yes, well, people have heard of them. Don't emulate your favorite. Don't emulate you two, the killers of Metallica, who are trying to tell a bunch of people who already care about them that they have a record coming out soon. You need to emulate the model that of bands that break. And the bands that break are the ones who keep pushing and figure out a way to do something interesting interesting twice a month and get people talking forever and make a great record that fans naturally spread. Right. And obviously now is a way different era than then, just because uh, I don't really know what the equivalent to having an album like Full Collapse being played on MTV would be today. Um, uh, there's no equivalent. Right. But so even if you, if you sort of shrink the margins from U2 down to today's like sleeping with sirens for rise, that band did 70,000 records first week and it was sort of all in on first week and the sales are well over like, you know, well over a hundred thousand now, but still it was, it wasn't like they were doing 70,000 then 50,000 then 20,000 then whatever they, you know, sales went from 70,000 to 10,000 to like a thousand each week. 
and that's and and that's all in on the front. But no no band is going to be able to do that within a year, obviously either. And that's yeah. And we're also even. talking about a bad other fourth release, basically right. at right. this point. And too. so I, I think there's, for a band like that, where it's God, we're brand new. We're brand new as a band, not brand new the band. Um, there's way more value to me in having a steady but slow grower in terms of, you know, that that week nine or that month nine, whatever, uh, for sales, where it's just word is picking up. You have a cool tour that maybe not loading your pockets in, but it's a really good look. Um, and, you know, it may take to that 18th month to whether you can say if there's a glimmer of hope or not for your band to continue going on. But just sort of the the total notion of, well, we've got 12 months to write and release something great that everyone's going to love. And then we have the remaining amount of that year to tour. Uh, and we're obviously going to get great, great tours. It's just like nothing is really realistic about that model. And I, you know, I do wonder how many bands have either like shot themselves in the foot or have never even really started because of that. <laughs> I, I agreed, and I, you know, another really interesting point um, I talk about in the book is like so, Guns N' Roses' "Appetite for Destruction," which is the second most long-running album on the charts of all time. Like so, meaning that it stayed on the charts for the second most of any record up to Pink Floyd "Dark Side of the Moon." The first two singles they put out on that record did nothing. Like, the band literally had zero sales. They put out Sweet Child of Mine nearly a year after that record's come out, and all of a sudden the record's now breaking records for sales. Macklemore, that was, fifth single was the one that hit. You know, they had to release some of these songs two times for it to hit because they slowly kept building up a fan base over time, and like... There was a persistence to the to their promotions that you know I think it was that that album cycle and we're still talking about an album cycle for this record. He's still on. It was like two and a half years deep, like at the beginning of this year, that he was putting out songs from this record, even if the record wasn't released yet. He was releasing singles in advance that would later be on that record, and they just kept slowly and slowly chipping away at that stone. And you can even see it for a band like you know like. I've been into Phoenix, I want to say, for like 14 years, but until they hit with um, that second-to-last record, you know, that was another slow slog of just them slowly building up a fan base, and then they, you know, did a multi-year album cycle of just chipping away at releasing singles and doing th cool things and cool tours and cool promotions. And I think a lot of people just don't have that sight because they see... The Killers release two singles, disappear for six months, and then go back. And they're like, oh, that's what I should be doing. Or like, you know, the weird album cycles that somebody like Fall Out Boy has now where you're like, I don't even know what the strategy is here, even if it's pretty much working. Right. And even with Blink, uh, What's My Age Again was the first single on Enema. And obviously, you know, Dude Ranch was a pretty successful album, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't have that major label feel in the sense that, like, wow, this band's going to be the biggest band in the world. Uh, so, "What's My Age Again" was released as the first single, and besides fans, like, it didn't get any radio play. It was. It was. Uh, it got a lot of TRL play, though. T sure, sure, but it wasn't like it wasn't what all the small things became. Uh, yes, and they had to release all the small things, and then it sort of clicked, and they they re-released "What's My Age Again" as a single, like a year after all the small things came out. And that was again like another like platinum selling single. And so, yeah, sometimes things just don't work on the first try. <laughs> and sometimes you do have to have patience. And you know, of course, Blink and Guns N' Roses or whatever are like very different examples in terms of how big they were at that time. But you know, things just 
naturally often take their mark unless you are a Katy Perry and whatever you release is going to have to get played on the radio. Yeah. Um, because it's not that way for everyone. And it's not that way for everyone that, oh, you released a new song, we're going to listen on Bandcamp. Sometimes it takes that like random Tumblr post or that random feature on some website where it's like, oh, this man is cool. Um, and there's never, it's just, it's this weird thing and it's always this weird thing of how a band gets popular. Um, I wanted to talk about it from the perspective of a band like Knucklepuck, uh, who I manage and the, the band, when I started working with them, there was never a comment of we're, we're going to give this a go for a year, um, or then we're going to break up. But there was this conversation of like, well, we do want to see where we're at because we're, we're not saying we're going to break up after a year, but if it seems like truly no one has listened to us, well, then maybe we're going to try to not tour 365 days a year, but just keep writing and releasing music that we think is really quality and then hoping something picks up. Uh, and so here we are now, I guess about 10 months later, I started working with them at the end of August. And um, this first year has been so great for us. We've had um, a few successful tours and a successful EP. Um, but you know, every once in a while, I have a conversation with them where it's like, hey, you guys, this is the first year, but really it's nothing. Um, like it's all, it's a concrete year and it's good for building your support systems and all of that. But if we're still abandoned three years, when we look back that first year that all these bands or some bands say, well, we're only going to be a band for one year or not. And then see where we are that first year. If you do continue to grow often just ends up being such a, such like a footnote to the rest of the history, because it may only be year two or year three where like, you write that song that really connects with your fan base or you get that good tour because you got lucky with a booking agent or something. And I, you know, I think there's, that's probably a similar thing for a man overboard or a transit that you worked with as well, where like there was interest, but looking back at it now, it's like, God, we put so much effort in to make that first year so great. And it was all needed to get to where we are now. But at sure. the same time, like looking a few years forward, boy, like that first year wasn't the end of the world. <laughs> or, or, or even just like little things like what was noise from upstairs Dahlia? Like, you know, they now seem like kind of like, you know, small things in Man Overboard's perspective, even though at the time they were like, we have to make this move. We have to get these songs out. This is what we're passionate about at the time. And uh, I think that that's a really important perspective is that, you know, so many of these small moves eventually became just a, another tree in the forest upon looking back. Um but I think what's another interesting thing is, is, you know, when you're a music fan and you're passionate about a small band, you know, there's that rule of you got to spread the word about them and do everything you can to alert people to them. Do that because there's a lot of your favorite bands that are really small right now that are eating ramen and feeling malnutritioned and horrible on tour and getting sick and having to drop off tours because they get pneumonia and things like that. You know, spreading the word to five of your friends makes the difference between them being malnutritioned and um, actually being able to eat a meal that doesn't make them um, have no immune system on tour. Yeah, and that, that's sort of what uh, interested me about talking about this in the first place with that article called uh, Slacktivist Fan Entitlement that I'll link in the show notes is just they brought up bands like Spray Nerd and Algernon. Um, and back then, and this was a little before my time even, but uh, I guess in 2009 or 2010, 
you know, a lot of fans were like, wow, these are the second coming of like emo pop punk in the sense of like the get up kids. And they clearly had a very dedicated fan base, but it never grew beyond that for, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, and that caused all these bands to just break up. And then when a band, when more popular bands came around, those fans of Algernon or Spraynard would be like, well, I don't get it. Cause like Spraynard or Algernon were so much better. What happened? What, what went wrong here? Um, and now those bands have, or one of those bands have reunited and there's a lot more love. And it's a similar thing almost to a basement where they broke up and, uh, they really got popular afterwards. Um, but you know, it is like, like, like just what you were saying, uh, you, like if you were calling some of these bands, like the second coming of the music that brought you into love with this music scene in the first place, like you got to support them. And whether that's from Bandcamp or a show or merch, I mean, you know, maybe we should be telling people that that name your own price tool, you know, it can be utilized and you can, you know, when you miss that bad show and you really wanted to see them, you can send them $10 by re-downloading a record. You know, it is kind of a tip jar if you're really believing this band and scared for wanting them to continue on. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And the name your own price thing is really cool just because just monitoring uh, Knuckle Pucks Bandcamp, sometimes I'll see $1 for a five-song EP, but sometimes we'll see 15 mm -hmm. You know, it's always like when you see that 15 it's like, wow, really appreciate that guy. No idea who he is, but I really appreciate him. Because uh, yeah. that stuff does make like make the difference, because that guy is going to come to the show too, and he might buy two T-shirts instead of one. Our second sponsor this week is, once again, Card Included. Card Included is the only self-serve download card service around. Um, for just a few dollars, bands and labels can secure a large amount of do uh, download cards for their vinyl or CD releases uh, for a very, very cheap price with no sign-up necessary. So you can upload your music and uh, maybe your album artwork for your CD or your uh, label logo and be ready to print a PDF of your download cards in just a few minutes. Um, Card Included can collect information uh, to help you know where fans are you know, looking to see you live at. So maybe you have more fans in Columbus than Cleveland. Tour there instead. So go to cardincluded.com for more, and thank you for sponsoring Off the Record. Um, so our last sort of topic this week is two things about Warp Tour. One is that Warp Tour is hanging signs this year with the saying, like, uh, you mosh, you crowd surf, you get... You get you get sued, or sorry, you get hurt, we get sued, no more Warp Tour. Um, and this was a little fitting, I think, for the conversation we had in our first episode, um, just about uh, sort of PSAs at EDM festivals about deaths um, and all that kind of stuff. So, Jesse, did that ring true to you, I guess? Did it remind you of sort of like a, you got to be more careful now? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we would particularly, you know, I remember this was a big thing with stage diving when I was growing up, but it really reminded me of it. I find like a very comical uh, turnaround that I don't really have evidence for as much as I feel like I saw it, which is like when I was growing up and I was 12, um, it was like we have to ban all aspects of skateboarding. This is the most dangerous thing. I can't believe a kid broke his leg. Oh, my God, this is the end of the world. And like. You know, like, skating anywhere, like, you know, like, I'd be a 12-year-old kid getting reprimanded by the police, like, every 10 seconds, and they, like, literally start to be laws, like, uh, you know, you're going to get arrested and put in jail, your parents are going to pick you up from the prison cell if you skateboard anywhere in public. And it was a really, really weird time around, like, 1989, 90, I want to say this was, and... um 
But now, and like every skate park closed down because no one would insure them. Now we literally see cities building skate parks. Um, and I think some of that is that one, you know, you need to, um, there needs to be some advocacy in quantifying how few injuries there really are uh, in these fields. Now, sadly, those injuries end up being very costly because even one injury, somebody gets hysterical and they ask for two and a half million dollars for a broken leg, which is absolutely ridiculous when the kid was going to earn four thousand dollars at his summer job that he lost. Um, but like, secondly, um, I think we will hit a point and I convinced some of these skate laws is that a lot of people who skated grew up and to work in politics and legislatures. I know them because they're my friends and they went, this is silly. And sadly, this is much more of an insurance company thing and insuring concerts is not the most lucrative business. And as my one friend who works for a insurance company said, it's where they stick the guy they really don't like who's been being a pain at the office. Right. <laughs> um, you know, they're like, yeah, you deal with this problem that makes us barely any money, but we need to do it to bring in other things. You know, there's a, uh, a, a thing of that. There needs to be some advocacy to show how little of a problem this really is. There really isn't that many injuries from moshing and stage diving and things like that. You know, I was a concert promoter for years, and the... You know, I literally could say, like, we had moshing three nights a week in this club, um, and the worst, there was no hospitalization injuries, and all the real injuries were because kids got in fights with each other. Right, but to play devil's advocate, don't you think it just can take that one time? It can take time? that one time, but here's the thing is, is what the advocacy needs to happen is just the same way as that everybody's now realized that an airplane is less likely to, cr a commercial jet, I should say, not an airplane, a commercial jet is less likely to crash than you getting in a car accident. We realize over time through advocacy and through the con media contextualizing things that how ridiculous hysteria gets. It's even the same thing with, you know, Molly deaths or like, you know, like we're still in a society where marijuana is illegal in most places. And, you know, how many deaths are there from people driving on marijuana compared to drunk driving and yet alcohol is legal? Like there needs to be advocacy. We're seeing this switch on marijuana. We're seeing it switch very fast, in fact. But the problem is, is what really needs to happen is if we want moshing, you know, maybe Kevin Lyman needs to kick back some money to an advocacy group that can actually show this. Because the one thing I'll say, too, is, is. Moshing is part of the enjoyment for that, uh, some types of music, just as Molly's sometimes the enjoyment so you can hear how bad Tiesto's music is. And you're, it's not as enjoyable uh, to have to, to not be able to do a part of this culture. Now, I was never really a mosher. I think I've stage dived the whole time in my life, maybe two. And... Uh, so it's not that for me, but I understand when it is for people. And what the other side of it is, is I'm sure uh, we'll probably see a hit in attendance for this because some dumb jocks just want to go there to get their weird jock mush on. And, you know, uh, that could decrease concert sales. And we saw that a lot with the stage diving thing is like, you know, it's hard to say because, you know, around 99... Uh, the economy was starting to sink and you could never, you know, make direct correlation with causation of this stuff. But like, you know, we felt like some of the stage diving stuff we had to prevent some of the shows that I would put on really did have a hindrance on attendance. And I, you know, I can't say it for certain, but 
no matter what, it did seem like a somewhat logical hypothesis. Right, and so I think what's sort of most interesting to me about this is that, well, one, I, of course, posted on the website, uh, and I did make a mistake at first that I very, very quickly corrected, saying Warp Tour is enforcing this, and that's not what they're doing. They're sort of taking a stand to promote it. Um, but what's interesting to me is that Kevin Lyman and Warped over the last few years have sort of escalated this in the sense that, uh, like, last year, bands said that they weren't allowed to say on stage, like, make a wall of death or something. And I think that was Bring Me the Horizon who said that. Like, they could not promote these things of, like, I want to see the biggest fucking mosh pit possible right now or I want to see a circle pit like it's 2003 or whatever, like, corny line you could come up with. Oh, man, 2003, really? I don't know. You got to talk to Yellow Card about that. <laughs> um, so I think, like, last year there was sort of a foot put down that bands couldn't promote these things. That could get fa uh, fans hurt. And that's not to say they were saying fans couldn't do it, but they just didn't want the bands promoting it. And now this year we sort of have like a sign on, on at least one or two stages that sort of preach like, you know, it's sort of like a slogan. It's a four, it's a four uh, line slogan, but it's a slogan nonetheless. Um, and I, I think the last line that just says literally no more warp tour is kind of uh, it's kind of, it's a big line, you know what I mean? It's And it's very, I think, likely, unlikely to happen um, from a possible incident that could happen unless somehow they're find, found liable and they have to pay millions upon millions of dollars. But um, it's curious to me that the language is sort of so strong. In that I think sense. some of the language being strong, though, too, we could attribute to the idea that they need to say that language so that they are reduced of liability so that if somebody does do it, they then can go... Hey, you know, we told them not to do this. We we very actively made strong language to say that we don't want you doing this. We are not encouraging this. And it sounds like last year telling bands to not say that was the first step in that in that direction. And I'm sure, I'm sure positive this is in reaction to what they've seen in testimony and lawsuits over moshing is that the liability gets held because they say make a wall of death and then somebody's playing a YouTube of what a wall of death is to a bunch of jurors who don't understand these things and I'm sure it's the worst episode of Law and Order ever made. Right, because you're literally hearing someone say, make a wall of death. <laughs> that sounds absolutely horrible and uh, like a jury I would never be selected to be put on. You know, I think, I think that's the thing is, you know, there there is a thing of um, you get away with the liability that you can't, just as um, a town can't be made accountable for a car accident when there is a stop sign there. And we all know not everybody stops or yields to a stop sign. This is kind of that equivalent of like, this will probably free them of some lawsuit liability, even if they don't fully enforce it. So I think then the last thing we wanted to talk about this week was a website called One, uh, Wandering Sound uh, yesterday posted an article titled Warp Tours One Problem. And so I, th I think everyone should read the article, whether you end up agreeing with it or not, or wanting to talk about it or not. But I think it's a worthwhile read for people. Um, and so some of the basic statistics about it before we get into the conversation are that they listed were only 20% of the 120-plus acts include at least one female. But if you count the female population of the bands on an individual level, women make up only 6% of the tour. Uh, and there, there are some more points like in alt on alternative press in the past three years, only five women have been on the cover, and two out of five of those have been Haley Williams. So there's really only been like four women on the cover in the last uh, three years, individuals. Um, and so the, the whole piece sort of 
goes through um, their thoughts on women in both punk and warp tour. Warp tour, the actual tour, and then the warp tour team, the warp tour scene, like alternative press. And uh, there, there are some quotes from Kevin Lyman and and some other uh, female fronted bands as well. Um, but so, so Jesse, what did what do you think? I guess about this conversation because it happened. This conversation, whether the word warp tour is put on it or not, happens. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very prevalent thing in our society. I think we're seeing that feminism is having a big comeback, which is something I'm happy about as somebody who wants to see women treated equally. But there's a big debate of this, and it's happening in the tech community, too, of that, you know. So a lot of people complain there's not enough women doing code. And, you know, so we're saying that there's 20% of the 120-plus acts that have a female in it, but... The big thing is, is it's a very chicken and egg thing is like, so you could say women aren't being put on the stage. Um, and so bads with females aren't getting popular because they're not getting see the support and they're being discriminated against. Or you could take it that the other way that there's not enough females in the seed who are being creators versus um, females who are just b- being um, part of the audience. Um, and that's a really interesting thing because, like, you know, how do you encourage more females to get into it? This is a genre that has a lot of girls who listen to the music, and, you know, yet they feel discouraged. Like, I see it in my profession of record producers of that, like, you know, I want to encourage girls to get into this, and I'm much more likely to take on a female intern because I would know that our studio is a good environment for women, whereas I've been in other studios where it's a disgusting, sexist environment. Um but do you then start getting into affirmative action and just start gratuitously putting more women on, even though those bands aren't necessarily better? Like, so for example, a great thing with this is um, I was out to dinner with a friend this weekend, and he works at a very esteemed news show, and there was an article posted about how little of a female population this news show had, and now the hiring has been. Uh, predominantly female, even when there's better male applicants, in his opinion. And he says that the workforce has kind of gotten degraded by that affirmative action and that they're having a lot more trouble with work because the less deserved candidate didn't always get the job. Um, And this seems to be a universal truth within that thing. And we could argue that this is an ingrained sexism, but I would also hesitate to say that when the females at the job are starting to agree with this, that it's probably a bit of a problem. So this is a very slippery slope. I think just sadly the way Kevin Lyman responded to it was absolutely idiotic. Right. Uh, yeah, and so the quotes were kind of frustrating, I think. Uh, and that that's sort of the worst part about the article. And I think it takes away from the article as well. And the one thing I want to say before we jump further into it uh, to comment on what you said is that you know, I, I absolutely agree that it's not like there are ninety percent of guys listening to this music and only ten percent of girls. You know, I, I think probably like as time goes on, even with property Zach, a larger percentage of our, you know, readers are more and more female based, and maybe eventually that will overtake the male population. Like it's it's fair, it's it's not cooler and it's not not cool. It's just what it is. Um, you know, I think you would be hard pressed to find many bands in our scene that have a truly predominant uh, male fan base. Um, and sure, like some bands, like I guess All Time Low, may skew that one side or the other. But I'd say when you just sort of average everything out, it's 
you know, it's pretty even if not just a little bit one way or the other. Uh, and I, I think that's great. Like it's not, it's not like the music itself is unfriendly to um, women listeners unless you push into like an Attila falling in reverse crown the uh, not crown the empire but uh sorry capture the crown kind of world and that that music is just disgusting for its own self uh but you know luckily that's not what most of these bands in our scene are um and so as, as the article said there, there's you know kevin lyman's specific quote was there's not a lack of women he says interrupting me before i finish asking the next question uh, if you got 20 bands that have women in them out of 120 bands, that's one-sixth of the bands. And the, the interviewer asked if he thinks that's okay, and Lyman responded with, that's absolutely okay. Um, and I, I don't really know. I think a lot of the comments I saw about this article, I think, unfortunately, just commented about the Kevin Lyman part. Uh, and to me, the whole article should should sort of be a discussion of well, is there a problem rather than Kevin Lyman seems misguided or sexist or like not advocating for women or, or whatever. And, and when you like boil it down to just criticizing Kevin, like, I think that's a little, yeah, there's misguided. a better conversation to be had, <laughs> just, but I yeah. think sadly he stole the show when he said, when he said some ridiculous things. Right. And, and that's the unfortunate part because, you know, maybe, and I'm not saying these are all like women based, but Kevin Lyman brings, a ton, a ton of charities out on his own dime for Warp Tour every year, including, you know, just, you know, Music Saves and to Keep Abreast and all, all these foundations that not only help women, but men of men of well men as well, of course. But it's clear that Kevin's not like a bonehead idiot. Yeah. Like, trying to just cash person. in on everything. But I think sadly, like, you know, so he brought up that there's this book, uh, WW stands for Worldwide Winers, and this gets to a thing that I see on the internet constantly with your boy Ronnie Radke or Franz from Attila, the leader of the Troll Corps movement. When these people get into it's just haters or it's just whiners for any criticism they receive, they're the losers. Because So this book, Kevin Lyman Cites, has been out for seven years. It has one Amazon review that's a four star like th this culture is pathetic and not educated at all when you just blame haters for things we're going to see criticism it should be a dialogue but there should be more to the dialogue than just I don't want to respond to you you're just hating on me for the sake of it while there's really dumb internet comments and you know the comments on your uh, website sometimes, especially when I write for it, I can just, you know, blow my brains out trying to re read them and take them seriously. But I take the time to educate my audience as to facts and reasoning behind my decisions every single time I do it. And if you're not capable of that, I actually don't think you're very capable of a form. And I say this, I'm somebody who respects Kevin Lyman immensely and think he's actually a very intelligent person, but that doesn't mean I think he's without a flaw. And I think handling things where you just blame the haters or the whiners on the internet instead of coming up with a valid response and reconsidering yourself. Like, I've gotten to be a better person because I grew up on the internet and for the last, uh, wow, 19 years of my life, I've been having to defend my views on things and it's made me a better person. And I think if you can't do that and you can only reduce it to haters, you've lost and you've lost one of the best parts of the internet, which is self-evaluation through a crowd think. And if you can't defend that, I don't think you deserve a forum. I, I totally agree. And we, like, for, in my uh, perspective of Property Zach, like, 
you know, it's predominantly my opinion because my name is on the website. But, you know, that doesn't mean I'm blocked out to things. Unless the kids think it's Zach for Bad Overboard. <laughs> One every month. Yeah, like uh, just the other day, actually, a singer from a band that currently has an album that's doing really well this year emailed me and he said, hey, like, I know we've talked openly before, and so that makes me comfortable um, being able to contact you about some problems I have with the website. And I really respected that, and I really appreciated it because often when you have a strong voice on the internet or in the music world, uh, people that disagree with you, I think, will uh, find the need to just talk over you in a way that you can't have a conversation back. So it'll be more of a thing where... On the website, I will post my opinion, and instead of someone saying, hey, why do you think this, or maybe you should look at it this way, they'll say, no, you're wrong, you're dumb, uh, I'm never looking at your website again, you're a piece of shit. Uh, and, you know, that happens every day. <clears throat> but for, you know, from, and that happens with bands too, unfortunately, and, and relationships get ruined. But what I was really respectful of, of this singer of this band, he approached me and he said, hey, I'd rather have a conversation with you instead of just saying why I think your website's wrong and I don't want to work with you anymore. And, you know, I, what I, and he was like, it's a hard conversation, but I'd like to have it with you. And, I, and my response was, well, hard conversations are the ones, are the only ones that really evoke yeah. change. Because at the end of the day, if, if Kevin Lyman walked away from that interview and walked away from reading this piece yesterday and he, and he only got pissed off instead of saying, hey, maybe I should... Maybe I should think about. Maybe I shouldn't think about this anymore. Um, but instead, now, hopefully, he read it and he said, "You know what? I'm going to take this into consideration. There's a lot of feedback. Like, let me look at this for next year's Warp Tour." Um, yeah, that that's the winning outcome, right? Even if he sounded like a little weird in this interview, at the end of the day, next year, if Warp Tour has six to ten percent of females or there's more like women employed or there's more activism or there's more charity whatever whatever the change could be like that's a win and that's okay and that's great like that should be the ultimate desired outcome not someone shit talking kevin lyman because he was taken off guard because kevin lyman has you know built a business over 20 years and none of us can either even really fathom what that dude has to do every day and so yeah i, I clearly think some of the comments, especially the one about the book, were just off base. But I think Kevin Lyman is, has always been proactive enough, and that's why the tour has survived for so long, to change when, when he realizes change is needed or to at least try things differently. And so I really wouldn't be surprised next year if we, if we saw some noticeable, slight but noticeable changes of a Warped Tour lineup or stage or, or things like that, right? Yes, and I, I, I want to even take the point that you made like about artists with this. Is like criticism is really tough when you've poured yourself so into it, and like you know, like one of the worst things is like you're reading reviews for people who aren't really creators, and they have no idea about creators. Like half the time, people aren't involved in music, so shitting on something seems very easy. But you know, as somebody who's put out, you know literally over a thousand records with my name on it, I've had to sit and take some really bad blows in reality and what's me which pushed me to become better at what I've done. Like when North Star's This Thing Loaded came out like over ten years ago now, it was like that thing of there was a lot of reviews that really trashed my production. And while I could sit there and I could go, well, I didn't have enough time to make a record as tight as I wanted to with the way that band was at the time. I had to take it in strides. I had to say, you know what? How do I prevent this from ever happening again? It promoted a 
big evaluation of me, and no record I ever did after that, again, ever had those same flaws that that record had, because I went, this isn't acceptable, people are blaming me as the problem, and in, in all honesty, I was the problem. I didn't have my head on straight, it was very early in my career, and it did the best thing for me to read punknews.org comments, which sounds ridiculous since it's the cesspool of the internet, but like... It was a great evaluation, and it got me where I am today. And like, without that, I don't know if I would have grown as fast. Right, and and there is a lot to say. I think about growth when realizing like you can do a situation better. And again, like we were saying, like that's ultimately the best shift for individuals' careers or lives, and also the general music scene if that person does have power. Um, the the one thing I I did want to mention was that regarding the comment about covers on alt press. Um, that's like an interesting conversation because, verse, uh, you know, as a counter to Warp Tour, like Warp Tour, of course, has all the main stage bands and then some of the bands on the other two larger stages that bring in their money. But then there's like four other stages with bands that you've never heard of, and those are just loss factors, most likely for Warped. But they put those bands on anyway because maybe three years down the line you'll have your next Fallout Boy or Paramore or whomever, right? Um, and clearly out of those 120 bands, you may have only heard of 40 of them and maybe you've only listened to 20 of them. Um, but with a magazine like Alt Press, like they have one chance a month to get new readers and then also new advertisers to keep their business model going. Uh, and you know they, they, they can't really afford to put on a, a random a random male fronted artist or a random female fronted artist if if it's not going to sell the magazines that's their business to have that standout thing every month um, and you know I don't know if there should have been a conversation with or if there has been a conversation within their offices to have more um, female fronted or just female membered bands on the cover but you know I, I have a colleague who has worked with alt press and for years now and you know some of the some of the covers with really large male fronted rock bands just bomb like i think scott heisel has publicly said that the covers with uh against me before laura jane's graces uh before laura jane grace like came out a few years ago and uh then there was an issue with the gaslight anthem i think scott heisel has publicly said that those are the worst two selling issues of alt press ever um, and you think about the Gaslight Anthem, and it's like, oh, that's a big band. Uh, or you think about Against Me uh, before the Laura Jane Grace thing, and like they were a big band too. Like they were a beloved band. Um, and so it proves to you know, it just proves that even when these bands are big, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to sell a bunch of copies. Um, and it's a similar thing, I would say. Like, you know, I saw someone say that on Facebook that mixtapes should be on the cover of all press, and that was said because. There, you know, uh, there's a female in mixtape, and more, and like I like the band, I'm friends with all the members of the band, and everything like that. But at the end of the day, like mixtapes are a hundred times smaller than the Gaslight Anthem, and if the Gaslight Anthem couldn't sell ten thousand copies on their own, uh, like, do you really think mixtapes would be able to? I don't know, but like that, like that's a financial decision. They need that really strong cover every month to keep the lights on. With Warp Tour, they need 20 really strong bands to carry the weight, and then the other 100 ones, they're all hit or miss. And that's just the business model. But I just think like that was just an interesting thing about the alt-press part- portion of the of the article uh, was just that like 
well, it's a business. And it's kind of foolish to just say, hey, like, you should change up how you need to make money to even make your magazine. Uh, and even if it kills your magazine, like, you need to have more whatever kind of people on the, on the front of your cover. Um, it's just a, it's just a slightly different thing where Warped Tour's model is the the biggest carry the the way to the rest, but on all it's like no the biggest can only be the biggest because there's only one of them on the cover. You know, T- totally great points. I think the other thing to remember in this debate too is that um, if there's any charity case that's just as big a charity case as musicians today, it's print magazines. You know, this is a business on life support as well. So the exposure they give it, it's it, it you know. Three bad covers in a row could probably be the end of some magazines, and so it's yeah. they, these are really important decisions that they can't just subsidize with charity all the time. Yeah, well, well, maybe that's it for this week. Do you have any recommendations? I I I have a slightly self promotional one of that. Uh, I just worked with a great band called Hayana, and uh, they're like a girly indie surf pop band, and. Um, I just highly recommend checking out their last EP because it's not every day that I totally love uh, a band I work with and really believe in them, but uh, their uh, latest EP is just awesome. And uh, since they were in the studio this week, I was re-listening to it, and I just remembered that. Great, and that'll be in the show notes. And I have not read this yet, but I just purchased Creativity, Inc., which is written by um, one of the founders of Pixar, and uh, from what I've heard about it, it just goes in. It's not a typical like successful businessman's book on how to be successful. It's much more about like the creativity side of Pixar rather than the business and how the creativity ultimately ended up being the business. Of course, um, so Ooh, I need to read that. Uh, yeah, I hope to read that on my plane ride back to the East Coast this week, and then hopefully some of you will as well. Thank you guys all for listening this week. Uh, you can find us at offtherecord.fm. Jesse is on Twitter at Jesse Cannon, and I am at ZZarillo. Uh, thank you to our two sponsors, Limited Run and Card Included, and we will see you guys next week. 